Hi everyone and welcome to the From the Hack podcast for week 12 of the 2018-2019 curling season. A bit of a different angle this week as our guests include Paul Melia, the CEO of the Canadian Centre for Ethics and Sports, who joined me to discuss the ongoing saga involving the World Anti-Doping Agency, the International Olympic Committee and the Russians, and we also talk about cannabis and whether its legalization in Canada will impact the way Canadian athletes are tested for the substance. We also welcome Matt Dunstone to the podcast whose team won the title at the DeKalb Superspiel this weekend in Morris, Manitoba. All that this week and more, but first, Canadian musician and non-curler extraordinaire Jimmy Reed plays us into the podcast. So before we get started, if you've ever wondered how they get those nice graphics into the ice at Grand Slams at the World Championships and at Nationals in Canada and the U.S., well, the answer is provided by Jedi's, whose in-ice graphics from easy and textile logos to the world-famous Jedi's Full House product are great ways for clubs to enhance the appearance of their ice and to generate much-needed additional sponsorship revenues. Easy and textile logos are the industry standard for high-quality logos and they're a snap to install. Meanwhile, Jedi's customizable full houses are a relatively new way for clubs to grow sponsorship revenues by offering maximum brand recognition to those sponsors. No one can match Jedi's design services, quick turnaround times, and product quality, which is why Jedi's products are valued by major organizations such as Curling Canada, the World Curling Federation, USA Curling, and Sportsnet, who trust Jedi's to provide the products they require for their high-profile events. Jedi's. They bring ice to life. Arnold Asham's passion for curling, along with his natural propensity to explore new ways to better the game, led him to a whole new world of product design. As a result, all Asham Curling Supplies products are designed with the curler in mind. Asham's patented ultralight RDS technology makes it possible to change and customize their slider with any combination of sliding discs. With equal resistance on all sides, the circular design that guarantees a straight slide. These circles have also been designed larger and with stabilizing bars from the outer unit sole to produce the most stable straight sliding shoe the world has ever seen. Go to www.asham.com for brooms, apparel, and revolutionary designed footwear. And if you're considering buying new curling shoes, you must consider the rotator sole. It's the sole of the future. From the Hacks recap of Week 12 of the 2018-2019 curling season is powered by The Curling Zone, your premier source for curling results from around the world. Visit us at www.curlingzone.com. As mentioned earlier, the DeKalb Superspiel took place on the weekend in Morris, Manitoba. In the women's final, Allison Flaxey defeated Jennifer Clark Ruir 7-5, while in the men's final, it was a battle of Saskatchewan, with Matt Dunstone defeating Kirk Myers 5-4. Matt Dunstone joined from the hack to discuss his team's progress so far this season and to look ahead to this week's Tour Challenge in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Matt, a solid weekend for your team in Morris at the DeKalb Superspiel, uh, going undefeated and playing well against teams such as Gunnlaugson, Schwaller, and Myers that have had solid starts to their season. We spoke earlier this season when you won your first title as a team. Just wondering if you've seen additional progress in the time since then. No, for sure. I mean, uh, just like I said earlier, we, we wanted to play play a bunch, right? And, and just that by playing that way, we can just kind of really nitpick what, what we have to work on and and between Vernon and, and now we've had quite a bit of time to nitpick and, and play a lot of the top teams in the world, like going to the slam and whatnot. So um, we, we've really been able to, to nail down some of the things we wanted to work on, and we've uh, for sure seen some progress between between uh, our quarterfinal finish at the slam a couple weeks ago and, and, and this victory, obviously. 
I know that one of your goals this season is to represent Saskatchewan at the Briar, and I know that we're still far away from the playdowns, but do you take any additional confidence away from the fact that the team you defeated in the final, Team Myers, in a close game, is likely to be one of the other favorites in the Saskatchewan playdowns come January? Yeah, like, I, I, I don't know if it's if it's a, a sense of confidence. I think it's just a sense of how good we actually have to be um, um, to actually win that Saskatchewan final. I mean, we, we had a great battle with Kirk's team in the final, and they they gave us everything we could handle in that game. Honestly, could have gone either which way. So I think that just proves to us how, how good we actually have to be um, to, to win that Saskatchewan championship. Uh, there's there's not going to be uh, many buys out there. So so I think just playing Kirk in that final is just going to motivate us to to keep working harder because we know we know a team like Kirk or, or many of the other teams in Saskatchewan. If if we're not on the top of our game, we're going to get uh, we're going to get nipped. As we speak, you are in Thunder Bay for the uh, Tour Challenge, the third Grand Slam of the season. Does a Spiel title a few days prior to a slam give you some additional confidence going into the slam? Or do you have to park that once you get on the ice in Thunder Bay because you'll be dealing with different ice conditions and playing against a deeper field? Yeah, I think almost like just subconsciously that, that confidence is just going to carry carry on onto the ice. I, I, know, like, I, I think between the four of us, we've just tried to park it and just realize, hey, it's a new event, like, um, it was awesome what we did, uh, but we still we still got some work to do here. So I think that's kind of the mindset we've taken, and and, and I think just that confidence from last weekend is just just going to flow in flow into this week, or at least I'm hoping, anyways. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean it's one one event's over, on to the next one, pretty much. And finally, Matt, you're one of the young guys on tour, and you've grown up playing in spiels where you might play two games or more per day. While at a slam, you often play one game per day. Does that change the rhythm for a team? Does it really mess with your routine? How do you fill the sometimes long gaps in between games when you're at a slam? Um, yeah, there's definitely definitely has its differences. Like yesterday, we played we played more we spent more time on the ice than we will Tuesday through to Thursday at the slam here. So uh, the, the preparation is definitely a little bit different. Uh, we, we find ourselves um, with these one-game days just finding different ways to, to stay loose and um, just going out and about, not just making sure you're not in your hotel room all day, that sort of thing, because it's, it's, it's so easy to just come out completely flat after a day of not really doing a whole lot. Um, so a lot of the time we'll, we'll, we'll look, look for things in the town to just try and stay active, find a way to... Just get some fresh air as much as we possibly can, and obviously when we're playing those those three game days, uh, there's there's no time for that. It's go 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 the entire time. So I mean, uh, I I know I can speak for my sweepers. They like they like the uh, little bit extra rest we get at the slams for sure. Um, obviously the 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 three game days are a little bit easier on me, but uh, I think uh, yeah, I mean I think we have a pretty good structure in place on on how we how we like to go about these one game days at the slam. The popular Dave Jones Alexander Keats Mayflower Classic took place in Halifax this weekend. In the women's final, Jill Brothers won her fourth consecutive Mayflower Classic with a 5 3 win over Veronica Smith of Charlottetown PEI in the final. In the men's final, local favorite Jamie Murphy defeated Scott McDonald of Kingston 7 6 in an extra end for the title. In Europe, in the Prague Classic in the Czech Republic, Cameron Bryce, now playing under Sweden, defeated Boris Jacecki of Poland 7-3 in the final. And finally, in the Madtown Double Down Mixed Doubles event in Madison, Wisconsin, it was a team of Monica Walker and Alex Leichter defeating the team of Shannon Burchard and Catlin Schneider by a score of 6-5 in the final. If you're looking to buy some new curling equipment, look no further than Hardline Curling. For those who play with the ice pad, they know it's the best curling brush. 
whether it's the U.S. Olympic gold medalist Team Schuster or women's Olympic gold medalist Sweden's Team Hasselberg and their countrymen Team Adin, or how about the top Canadian teams Team Gushu, Kevin Cooey, Brad Jacobs, Team Carruthers, Kerry Anderson and Chelsea Carey. The list is endless and Hardline is not just curling brooms. They offer a full range of curling equipment to get you playing your best including shoes, apparel and the Pro Slide Delivery Aid designed by Reed Carruthers. Visit their website at www.hardlinecurling.com and see why the top teams in the world choose Hardline for their equipment needs. Before we move on to our final guest of the week, I wanted to remind you that From the Hack is part of the Curling Podcast Network, along with the Two Girls in the Game podcast and the Curling Legends podcast. If you haven't subscribed to those two podcasts yet, you should really check them out. I also wanted to tell everyone that the Women of Curling calendar is now out, and it's nice to see the involvement of several women that have been guests on From the Hack. I wanted to give a huge shout out to all of the women that participated in this project in support of such good causes, and I'd encourage you to purchase your calendar from any of the women involved, many of whom will be in Thunder Bay this weekend for the Tour Challenge. Also, join us for next week's episode, which will be a busy one as we recap the Tour Challenge Grand Slam, the Canadian Mixed Curling Championships, and the Pacific Asia Curling Championships. In an interview that was recorded for a new podcast called The Canadian Sports Story, produced by the team behind From the Hack and hosted by yours truly, Paul Melia, the CEO of the Canadian Centre for Ethics and Sport, which among other things looks after Canada's anti-doping program, joined me to discuss the mess surrounding the World Anti-Doping Agency and the Russians and the International Olympic Committee, and we also talk about if the legalization of cannabis in Canada will change the way that athletes are tested for that substance. Paul, we're going to discuss the World Anti-Doping Agency and the controversy that has surrounded that organization over the past while in a few moments, but I wanted to start our conversation off with another matter that has made headlines in Canada over the past several weeks, and that is the recent legalization of cannabis in Canada. Will the legalization of cannabis by the federal government of Canada have any impact whatsoever on whether or not Canadian athletes will be tested for cannabis, which, unless I am mistaken, remains on the World Anti-Doping Agency's list of banned substances? No, that's correct. The um, the banned list, uh, which is reviewed and updated every year, um, cannabis will remain on the list as a substance that will test for in competition. It's a uh, it's considered more of a game day drug as opposed to one that someone would use in training and gaining benefit from. So we only test for it in competition. Uh, so the legalization of marijuana in Canada doesn't impact its status in sport. It, it remains on the banned list, and uh, you know one can debate whether it's performance enhancing and should be on the list, but that's another issue. I want to harken back to the situation surrounding Ross Rebliotti, who tested positive for cannabis at the 1998 Games in Nagano and claimed that he had ingested it secondhand. With cannabis now being legal in Canada, would it be possible for an athlete to test positive as a result of secondhand smoke or have the threshold levels allowable been raised high enough to avoid positive tests should an athlete be subject to secondhand smoke at a party or at an off-site venue? Yeah, it's a tricky business. Um... First of all, when that situation was unfolding in Nagano in 1998, that predates the World Anti-Doping Code. And at that time, um, each individual sport had its own um, banned list. Uh, the IOC then had a banned list that used during the Olympic Games. Different countries had banned lists. And then there were different sanctions for different substances that were on different lists. And you know, that in large part was why the World Anti-Doping Code was so necessary to create that harmonized approach to anti-doping across all sports and across all countries. So one of the things that, that, you know, so the code comes into effect, but cannabis 
remains on the list. So now all sports, the IOC, when they have an Olympic Games, um, and all countries that are implementing the code uh, need to test in competition for cannabis. However, um, it is true that as we've come to understand more about cannabis, um, we've identified that it is performance enhancing only in competition. We recognize that cannabis is a substance that when uh, taken into the system can remain in the system a long time. Uh, the half-life as it's referred to of cannabis is quite long. It varies from individuals, so it's very difficult to know. But originally, we were testing for cannabis above a threshold of 15 nanograms per milliliter in the body. We've raised that, we being the WADA list committee that sets um, these criteria. We've raised the reporting threshold for the laboratory now to 150 nanograms per milliliter because it's not the intention of, of the World Anti-Doping Code, as it's implemented in Canada or anywhere else, to try and police recreational drug use. Uh, the intention is to try and catch athletes who are cheating by doping. And so it was raised, um, and so that, that, that does eliminate some of um, picking up the recreational drug use. But again, because, you know, when a cannabis is taken into the system uh, through various means by individuals, those individuals' metabolism and, you know, excretion, if you like, of cannabis is quite variable and it's very difficult, if not impossible, for us to give any sort of rule of thumb to an athlete with respect to how much cannabis they may have taken and how much time they need to allow for uh, to clear their system before they compete. So our advice has always been and will remain that athletes who are competing and subject to the Canadian Anti-Doping Program uh, should avoid using cannabis. I want to touch briefly on the drug testing process for international level Canadian athletes to provide the audience a sense of how the process works. I saw firsthand at the Olympic curling trials last year the doping control agents, uh, they were on the ice immediately following the end of both the men's and women's final. How often are national level athletes likely to be tested and how random are the tests? Okay, well I'll give you a you know a broad description of that, Frank, and I'll um, I'll keep it fairly broad because I mean one of the things that uh, we never want to do is um, kind of telegraph um, to an athlete uh, when, where, and uh, what they might be tested for. So it's important that our test distribution planning and the execution of that plan, uh, <clears throat> you know, is 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 kept confidential. Um, but um, what where we start, where we start in Canada, is a belief um, that our athletes are clean, um, but that there is a chance and there is a likelihood that some athletes may uh, choose to dope and we need to have a strong deterrent program through our testing and we need to have an effective detection program through our testing. So we established that pool of athletes which we call our registered testing pool um, and they are the athletes in the various sports who represent and compete for Canada in international competitions. Um, and we then categorize those sports um, by um, their risk of, of doping. Certain sports have a higher risk of doping. Certain athletics disciplines, uh, weightlifting, football. Uh, there are sports where strength, for one thing, um, is a very important um, prerequisite, and that creates a higher risk of doping. There are other sports like cross-country skiing and cycling where aerobic capacity becomes very important, so they become high risk for doping as well. So we do that analysis in terms of the sports. And then for the athletes themselves, we collect information because you referred to the random testing and, 
you know, if we go back in time, originally we just tested in competition, then we realized that athletes were, you know, using doping substances in training, and they were clearing their system, and then they were competing, and there was no evidence of the substance, but they still had the performance-enhancing benefits. So we went to year-round out-of-competition testing as a complement to the in-competition testing. And then we went to a random approach in the belief that if we were random in our approach, then we could create a sense among the athletes that they could be tested anytime, anywhere. Um, there's still an element to, the, to our approach that is random, but it is much more intelligence-driven now. We collect information on individual athletes. We track their whereabouts. We look at their training patterns. We look at their performance patterns. We collect, where possible, um, data from their um, training performances in the gym or depending on what the sport is. Um, we have a report doping hotline where we receive information uh, confidentially and uh, sometimes anonymously. All of that is pooled uh, by our team to look at, you know, which athletes to test, when to test them, where to test them. Um, and so it's uh, not possible for me to say that, you know, athlete X gets tested X number of times. Uh, we, um, we try to ensure that the athletes who we believe may be at greatest risk are uh, tested most frequently, but the important thing is that we test them at the right time. A lot of athletes who are doping now uh, will microdose in 48 hours before an event, and again, they get the performance-enhancing benefit of the substance, but it quickly clears their system because they're taking a microdose, um, and if you test in competition, you don't catch them. So that 48-hour window before a competition becomes a very high-risk period. We concentrate a lot of testing there. Um, we do a lot of home visits. Um, we're not just testing in training camps or in, in, in competition now. We're doing a lot of home visits because athletes have to give us information on where they will be 24-7, um, 365 days of the year, and they have to guarantee an hour every day where we can find them if we need to and test them. Uh, this is very intrusive on the personal lives of athletes, but it's necessary uh, to be able to cut out or cut off those windows of opportunity for athletes to cheat. Um, you know, Lance Armstrong was very adept at avoiding the testers and uh, not being tested when he didn't want to be tested. So um, these are the reasons that we've had to put in place these, these uh, conditions on athletes. What about uh, professional leagues such as the NHL and the NBA? Do the leagues and the players associations in those leagues allow you to test Canadian athletes randomly if they represent Canada internationally? And do the pro leagues follow the World Anti-Doping Agency's banned substances list? Or are there some variances depending on the sport and or the league? Yeah, no, it's a good point, Frank. Um, you know, um, in a perfect world, um, all sports, you know, professional or otherwise, however you want to categorize them, all sports in all countries would have adopted the World Anti-Doping Code and would um, uh, ensure that their athletes are abiding by um, the World Anti-Doping Code because it is really the gold standard when it comes to um, trying to police uh, doping in sport and to try to catch those who are cheating. But as you note, um, we might say the big four professional sports in North America, football, baseball, hockey, and basketball, being in the entertainment business first and maybe the sport business second, uh, they've chosen not to adopt the World Anti-Doping Code. Each of them have developed their own internal approach to anti-doping. And, um, you know, it's, I think it's fair to say it's not as uh, robust, rigorous, and, and as effective as the World Anti-Doping Code would be. And um, so uh, I'll leave it there. But to, to address the second part of your question, which is when 
an athlete from one of those professional leagues is asked by their country to participate on behalf of the country, um, and maybe the example that would be most familiar to our listeners would be when the Olympic men's hockey team is assembled to compete in the Olympics, then those athletes who are typically, you know, selected from NHL professional teams, they need to be subject to um, the World Anti-Doping Code um, six months before the start of the Olympic Games. Uh, and so we get the long list of prospects because the team is never finally determined six months out. So we get a long list of prospects who become um, part of that testing pool uh, heading into those Olympic Games. And, uh, and we carry out our testing program in a way that we think will be most effective um, and it is consistent with the World Anti-Doping Code. And, and, and then as the team is, is uh, reduced to its final number, um, then, then that team uh, becomes the final testing pool uh, going into the games. Now, one of the things we do first and foremost once we establish that long list and that big pool is we educate them on their rights and responsibilities under the World Anti-Doping Code or under the Canadian Anti-Doping Program in Canada so that they're aware, uh, to your point, that in, in the NHL, maybe this is the banned list, but in under the World Anti-Doping Code, this is the banned list, and here are the differences, and here are the things you need to be aware of. Uh, they need to file whereabouts information, as I referred to earlier, which is something they wouldn't have to do with um, their NHL teams. Those kinds of differences would apply, but we make sure they're educated first before we carry out any testing, and then certainly in competition, you know, they're 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 made aware of um, any substances that now may be banned in under the World Anti-Doping Code that they need to be aware of that may not have been a problem in, in with their NHL uh, program. All right, so let's move on to WADA. For those in our audience that may not be aware, can you briefly outline where the World Anti-Doping Agency fits in the larger international sporting structure? I know they get a portion of their funding from the International Olympic Committee, and I believe they get another portion of their funding from national governments. But does WADA actually report to the IOC, or is it truly an independent agency? And I ask this question because the composition of the WADA Foundation Board and some of the decisions made by WADA over the past couple of years have made its independence seem murky at best. Yeah, that's a really that's a really good question and a and a timely one because that's uh, probably where uh, most of the controversy around WADA uh, exists right now. But WADA was created in that environment that I referred to earlier in the late 90s um, when, you know, different sport organizations, governing bodies, different countries, the IOC, the IPC, International Paralympic Committee, they were all trying to address the doping issue, but it was in a very uncoordinated and um, disharmonized way. So the governments of the world and the sport governing bodies, including the IOC, came together and said, you know, let's develop uh, an agency um, and a code that can govern all sports and be applied in all countries so that all athletes in all sports are subject to the same set of rules and the same band list and subject to the same kinds of sanctions and that that would be more effective. And so there was agreement on that between the governments of the world and sport. Um, and the World Anti-Doping Agency then was created at that time in around 2000 and the governance structure of WADA was such that they have an executive committee that is made up of six representatives from 
um, the IOC, and six representatives from the governments of the world. And those six representatives from the governments of the world come from each of the um, what they call Olympic regions. So here in Canada, we are part of the Americas, which includes Canada, the United States, Central and South American countries. Um, so you can imagine the number of countries that are involved there. Um, one representative from that area, one from Europe, one from Asia, uh, and, and so on. And so you have those government representatives, and you have those IOC representatives, and then you have a chair and a vice chair. And the uh, practice had been that the chair would have two, three-year terms and be in the first instance from sport, and then the next six-year term would be from what we refer to as the public authorities or the governments, and it would continue to rotate. Uh, so, uh, and on top of that sits a foundation board where the governments and sport have broader representation. I think there are about 46 members of that foundation board um, who vote on the decisions and recommendations being brought forward by the executive committee. Now, that's the governance structure, and uh, I think the World Anti-Doping Agency would like to claim that they are an independent regulator, um, and their job is to regulate and ensure that all countries who have adopted and all sport organizations who have adopted the World Anti-Doping Code are actually implementing it in the way it's designed, you know, in a consistent and effective way so that athletes around the world can have confidence when they compete anywhere that they're competing clean against clean athletes on a level playing field. And so that's their job, the World Anti-Doping Agency, to regulate the implementation of the code and make sure everyone's doing it right. And if they're not, to make sure that the appropriate sanction um, is imposed. In reality, um, because of that executive committee, as I've described it, with those six members from the IOC, those six from governments, and and today the current chair is uh, Sir Craig Reedy, who is the senior vice president of the IOC, um, is the chair of WADA. So when um, there is any controversial decision to be made, uh, the sport side of that executive committee always carries the day, in part because they're six plus one with their chair, but also because those government representatives from those six areas of the world have a very difficult time sort of getting on the same page around any particular issue. And the IOC has a fair amount of influence in certain developing countries where they contribute a lot of money to be able to influence what that decision might be. So they're all that to say, they hold themselves out, the World Anti-Doping Agency, as an independent organization, uh, but their governance structure is hopelessly conflicted. Um, and that's one of the very controversial issues today in the calls for reforms of WADA, in particular, their governance structure to create a much more independent governance structure so WADA can act independently um, in ensuring uh, that the code is implemented uh, across all adoptees. Last month, WADA's Compliance Review Committee reinstated the Russian Anti-Doping Agency, even though Rusada had failed to meet what many consider to be the two most important conditions to reinstatement. 
One of those preconditions was that Russia was to admit that they had operated a state-run doping system, but they never went that far, only admitting that certain officials were involved. The second precondition of reinstatement that they have yet to meet is providing access to the Moscow laboratories and, most importantly, access to data on the testing of over a 1,000 Russian athletes. How disappointing was it for the Canadian Centre for Ethics and Sport and to the National Anti-Doping Organizations that the Water Compliance Review Committee voted to reinstate the Russian Anti-Doping Agency, or, or RUSADA, even though the Russians had failed to meet perhaps the two most important conditions to reinstatement? Well, I would say it was profoundly disappointing. You know, certainly, you covered a lot of ground there, Frank, but the McLaren report demonstrated irrefutably that this was a state-sponsored, state-run system-wide uh, doping program that was being operated in Russia. There is no doubt about that. And so uh, going back to when that report was first tabled and before the Rio Olympics and the expectation in the face of that evidence that there would be a proportionate and appropriate sanction to Russia for doing this was what everyone was expecting, especially the athletes who are subject to the code and who suffer very serious sanctions. You know, for a doping offense for an athlete, they start with a four-year ban. I mean, that's a really significant uh, sanction for many athletes that, that, that tantamount to a lifetime ban in their sport. So they're looking at the biggest doping scandal in the history of sport carried out by a country, and they're looking to see what's WADA going to do now to sanction that country. And there was all kinds of obfuscation around, well, we don't have this authority, that authority. IOC should do this. IOC, of course, didn't do anything. They said, well, we'll turn to the IS and all of that. So, so you've got to understand that context and background that everyone was looking, especially the clean athletes of the world who were looking to water to defend uh, their right to participate in clean sport and to protect them, doing nothing, the IOC doing nothing. And so a roadmap was created as conditions for the reinstatement of the Russian Anti-Doping Agency. And as you point out, um, they did a number of things, and they should be recognized and given credit for all the things they did do in, in trying to right the ship there in that Anti-Doping Agency. But these two that remained, as you point out, two most critical ones, publicly acknowledging the McLaren report, and um, by doing that, acknowledging it was a state-sponsored and state-run program of doping, and granting access to these over 2,500 samples and the data associated with them that could be used to look at the over a thousand athletes that uh, McLaren identified as being involved in the doping program in Russia. McLaren was able to say that there was state-sponsored doping, but his his remit was not to look at individual athletes and who might have been doping. But in his investigation, he identified over a thousand were involved. And so, how do we link? you know, that lab data to those athletes and assert the anti-doping rule violation that should follow from that. That's why the lab uh, data becomes so important. Um, so the conditions are set out in this so-called roadmap to reinstatement for Russia. All the stakeholders agree, and there's a holdout by Russia on these two. So it seems the reason for the profound disappointment and disillusionment and lack of confidence in WADA is that both the way in which they went around changing the conditions of that roadmap, first that they would even do that. All of a sudden, rather than having a sanction, a proportionate appropriate sanction on Russia for what they did as perhaps the roadmap to a certain extent imposes on them, the focus became on how do we get Russia back in? 
not what is the appropriate sanction and let's hold them accountable and let's make sure they meet all these conditions. No, all of a sudden it became, how do we get Russia back in? We've got to get them back in. Let's negotiate around these remaining two conditions. And they, they, they suggest that somehow it was a victory that they said, okay, you don't have to acknowledge McLaren. You can acknowledge Schmidt, which is a lot softer and doesn't really speak to the state sponsored. You know, that's okay on that one. And then on the lab data, which was a condition before reinstatement, they said, we'll reinstate you, and then we'll create a date in the future when you have to let us into the lab, December 31st of this year. Well, you know, I mean, again, I, I think the average person on the street can, can, can see how that is a ridiculous response by the World Anti-Doping Agency um, to the reinstatement of Russia based on the roadmap to change the conditions that way and then to try to hold that out as some kind of victory. It's only a victory if your goal was to get Russia back in. It's not a victory if you're standing up for clean athletes. And so, so there's just, uh, this is, and the concern, of course, is that the IOC was manipulating all of this, telling Wadi, you've got to get Russia back in, figure it out. You know, they're an important big country. We need them hosting championships. We need them in the next Olympics. All of these things became much more important um, than appropriately sanctioning them and holding them accountable for what they did. The CCES recently requested an independent review into allegations by Becky Scott that she was subjected to bullying behavior by members of the World Anti-Doping Agency's Executive Committee at a recent meeting in the Seychelles. Can you provide an update on whether such an independent review is being considered? I know that IOC executive member Nadad Lalovich, who also sits on the WADA Foundation Board, has said that he welcomes an investigation into Scott's allegations, but he also said on the record that he would be surprised if the allegations were true. Yes, when when Becky Scott, celebrated Canadian Olympian, who has as an athlete and uh, and now in her post-athlete career, uh, has done more certainly than any other Canadian to fight for clean sport. When she goes public and states that she was bullied um, in this executive committee meeting in the in Seychelles, I mean. I don't think you can ignore that, right? Um, and I don't think any organization um, that holds itself up to be a professional organization can ignore that. Um, so yes, the CCS, together with Athletes Can, which is the uh, organization in Canada that represents the interests of, of athletes, um, we issued a media release calling on WADA as a professional organization based in Canada, operating in Canada, subject to Canadian labor laws, Quebec labor laws, to conduct an independent investigation of these allegations and to make that process transparent and to publicize the findings of that independent uh, investigation. And if those uh, allegations are found to be true, then appropriate sanctions should, or consequences should follow because there's just no place uh, for the kind of behavior that was alleged uh, to take place um, in organizations today. That's, that's a long time ago when males ruled the world and operated that way in meetings and back rooms and used intimidation and bullying to get their way. That's not the way we conduct business today in, in, in our institutions, in our organizations, and it certainly shouldn't be the way WADA conducts its business. So if it's true, they need to address it, and the only way to find out if it's true is to conduct an independent investigation, a truly independent investigation. Uh, and so we've called on them to do that. 
I realize that there has been a push to reform the World Anti-Doping Agency governance model over the past few years, including a summit you just attended in Washington, D.C., which called for a review and changes to the current governance of WADA to make it more transparent and to give the athletes a stronger voice in that governance. Can you talk about whether it's likely that such reforms will be implemented in the short term, or will those reforms be challenged by forces that still have an influence on WADA via the IOC or national governments? Yeah, the, uh, I, I think the meeting in, Wa- in Washington yesterday, which was convened by the White House, and there were um, seven, eight, nine, ten countries with their ministers of sport, um, with their national anti-doping organizations, and with athletes in attendance, uh, because the um, the behavior of the World Anti-Doping Agency in the wake of the Russian doping scandal has led to a uh, lack of confidence um, and credibility uh, of the World Anti-Doping Agency. And so that group yesterday, I think, reinforced and reconfirmed the calls that have been being made for a couple of years now. Number one, um, that the World Anti-Doping Agency uh, governance structure needs to be reformed and it needs to be created in um, an independent model. So the executive committee, for example, should have experts um, on that committee, not representatives from um, sport organizations who are decision makers in sport organizations who have conflicted interest. You cannot have the fox guarding the hen house, which is what's going on there. Um, <clears throat> to your question, is that likely to happen? There's a lot of resistance by the IOC to make any changes, and you can understand why, because they, you know, uh, they can effectively operate water like their own puppet, and so they're very resistant to seeing any changes uh, to water's governance structure. <clears throat> but that's that that that's what's being called for, um, and uh, I think there's they did can they did create a water governance working group to look at and bring back some recommendations, and that group will make some recommendations to the executive committee uh, in later in November of this year. Um, there's some modest moves in the right direction with respect to calls for independence of the chair and vice chair um, of WADA, but they don't go far enough. They don't go nearly far enough to create the independence that's necessary uh, to stop the meddling in the operations of WADA and let them do their job. Uh, so that's one. Um, the second thing that uh, was extremely important that's related to that is that athletes, um, <clears throat> and, 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 and you know, let's be frank, right, uh, without athletes you don't have sport, right? And um, so, and yet, at the WADA governance structure, at their executive committee table, WADAs don't have a voice. Uh, athletes don't have a voice. They're not entitled to vote. Even though Becky is chair of the athletes committee of WADA, she goes there and she does, she's, she's not entitled to vote. Uh, so athletes need to be built into that new governance structure so that they have a voice, that they have a say, that they're part of the decision-making process. That's, that's crucial. They can no longer be marginalized and disregarded uh, because doping profoundly affects them. It's their health and safety um, that's at stake. And the third thing that we talked about yesterday that's an emerging thing is the allegations that Becky brought forward because there's a belief and a concern because it's been heard from other people in other quarters of similar kinds of intimidating and bullying tactics. And so there's a call for an investigation, not just into Becky's allegations, but into the corporate culture that's operating at the governance level within WADA uh, to make sure 
um, that uh, there is not a culture of intimidation and bullying going on there. And if there is, it has to stop. And finally, Paul, if there is an elite 16-year-old athlete listening to this conversation somewhere in Canada, hoping to represent the country at the 2024 Olympics, and they go on to achieve that dream, what is the likelihood that he or she will be competing on a level playing field with each of the athletes in that competition competing clean? Tough to put a sort of probability on that. Um, it's, it's as we've been discussing, I mean, we're at a crossroads uh, in terms of uh, the fight against doping in sport. And, you know, if we take the direction that the group in Washington yesterday has advocated, then there's a very good chance that that athlete will be able to compete on a level playing field and have confidence that the athletes that they're competing against are clean, which is not the case today. But if the IOC digs in their heels and tries to protect the status quo and the current governance structure, continues to marginalize athletes and keep them out of participating in these decisions, um, then I don't think there's a very good chance that athletes will be able to compete um, internationally uh, with confidence that the other athletes are clean. And that does it for the From the Hack podcast for week 12 of the 2018-2019 curling season. A big thank you to each of our guests and to all of you for listening. I'm Frank Rock, and this is From the Hack.